Hi, I'm Jamal Howick Doris, one of the young podcasters from Thrive. Following our podcast series with the Royal Opera House Bridge, we were asked by the Five Rights Charity to produce another set of podcasts that documented the United Nations Children's Rights Expert Consultation in London. Mason, Jeevan, Owen and Fian sat down with a wide range of experts to find out how close the world is to changing children's rights online. We wanted to truly understand what this consultation event was about. So we first sat down with Baroness Biban Kidron, founder of the Fire Rats Charity, and we asked her a few questions. Hello and welcome to yet another podcast. My name is Mason. My name is Fee. My name is Jeevan. And my name is Owen. And today we are here in Covent Garden, London, uh, with Baroness Biban Kidron. Yes. Is that correct? <laughs> um, would you like to introduce yourselves? So, um... I'm Biban Kidron and yeah. I, I am a Baroness, yeah. Yeah. I'm an independent uh, member of the House of Lords, we call it a cross-venture, that means mm-hmm. I don't have a political party, uh, but I'm also the chair of the Five Rights Foundation and we work with young people and for young people to make sure that their rights and their needs are met by the digital world. So we take the view that the digital world was invented without even really thinking about that young people would be spending their childhood Mm. online. It was sort of designed by adults for adults. And we think, actually, you've got to stop now that young people are growing up online and say, what does that mean? How should we design it? What do they need? What would they like? And what would give them the greatest sort of expression of their own agency and their own sort of sense of being and flourishing? And so that's what we do. And we're a charity. Um, uh, We do quite a lot of interesting things, Mm -hmm. including what you saw today. (laughs) Over the past few years, Five Rights and yourself have been so Mm -hmm. successful. Do you want to give us a few um, success stories? (laughs) <laughs> oh, where do you begin? Uh, no, um, uh, so, so we do a number of things and we try and say that our work is in four different areas. One is design of service. So we say, hang on a minute, if young people are using the services, we want it designed for them. So that might mean not surveying them. It might mean not taking their data. It might mean not targeting them with advertising. It might mean some of those popularity loops should be calmed down a bit so people don't feel they've got to act in certain ways in order to be popular. Uh, Definitely things around how you auto-recommend so that someone sees something and then they see something else and see something else and then somehow 20 minutes later they're in a world they did not want to be in. You know, so we think about designer service and a lot of our work is there and we've brought in some... uh, um, you know, really good ideas. We've developed ideas, and in my role as a politician, I brought in some uh, data protection law. And as an organization, we've done a lot to try and explain why it matters because most people think data regulation, you know, it's, it's kind of not very exciting prospect. Um, so we do a lot of work trying to, 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 to make young people understand why it's relevant. We also do stuff around children's rights and we go, hang on a minute, why is it that children's rights are not being applied online? That doesn't make sense. You know, a, a child's rights, and I, and I have to say, if I use the word, word child in this conversation, I am talking about anyone under the age of 18. And that's not me being rude to people who are teenagers and young people. It's literally what we call it. It's the rights of the child. And that is someone under 18. So I have not understood, I have never understood why those rights aren't applied online because 
you know, they go with you. They don't go according to the environment. It's not like, you know, the, that you can't be commercially exploited if you're an Indian kid in a farm, you know, but you can be exploited if you're sort of being data mined in, in New York City. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. So what we're doing here today is actually making a codicil, which is like a legal extra bit to the convention, say, okay, children's rights do apply online. Now, what does that mean? And so this is a very big day for us because... Although you heard us arguing about the detail, the truth is that it's actually, we've won the battle. Because by doing this codicil, we've already... Acknowledged on this. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Yeah. We were excited to start asking questions about the future, but something no one on our team could answer was, if the internet became so popular in the 90s, why had it taken so long for this conversation to start? We decided to ask some of the experts. Why has it taken so long for there to be a universal drive towards humans, uh, sorry, children's rights online? Like, what's taken so long? My name is Miki Kortani, a member of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child. Um, and uh, the Committee on the Rights of the Child has 18 members, and we um, set up the working group uh, on general comment um, on the children's rights in the digital uh, environment. Uh, so I am one of the uh, committee's working group uh, for this new general comment. Uh, this is just my first my personal view. Uh, yeah. I could think of two, three reasons. Uh, firstly, this is not the first time uh, for the committee to take up the issue of digital environment. Uh, we um, organized a day of general discussion. Um, it happens once two years, and uh, the in 2014, the committee already chose this topic uh, for our biennial uh, day of general discussion. So it was already five years ago, uh, because it, it was in 2014. So this um, general comment uh, is a kind of, uh, not to follow up, but uh, mm. in the based on our discussion uh, in 2014. So, secondly, the committee adopted the general comment on state obligations of business activities. It's a general comment number 16 in 2013. And in that general comment, uh, we actually addressed the issue of internet and uh, digital issues. That's one. So, it's not only now. With that settled, our first goal was to find out what is being done to keep children safe online already. I'm Alicia and I used to work with Sonia at the London School of Economics and I have since left and now work at Google. What do you think Google does to protect the child child's rights? What do you mm. think Google does like successfully? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a big range. It's a big company, and obviously, there's a lot of different products. Um, in terms of the kind of you know thinking first about protection, um, obviously, Google does a lot to identify and report you know abuse towards children. Um, you know, using technological means, you know, developing machine learning to try to find um, material, and also you know training kind of you know human reviewers and, and create policies to catch abuse. Um, you know, protect children's data in different kinds of ways across different products. Also, um, you know, things like 
So, you know, on YouTube, we have a set of community guidelines, which actually have new language about harassment and bullying and, um, you know, even things like the Tide Pod challenge, you know, sort of like trying to keep on top of things like pranks that might, you know, cause people to maybe inadvertently endanger themselves <laughs> or the cinnamon yeah. one or, you know, there's lots of ones there. But at the same time, you know, kind of allowing for challenges and pranks that are okay, like yeah. bottle flipping or the cheese throwing one that we saw recently. <laughs> All right, I'm Jeff Chester. I'm the executive director of a U.S.-based na- uh, nonprofit organization, a campaigning organization called the Center for Digital Democracy. Now, the business model for the Internet from the very beginning was to collect all your personal information, to track you wherever you go. Back in the 1990s, it was really on websites. And to develop profiles of you, digital dossiers, that would help advertisers and marketers target you. And we felt that these very powerful technologies, the internet was going to be the most powerful media technology ever created so far, that We should not have a media technology that can literally spy on individuals. Before the internet, of course, you had broadcasting, right? Or or cable television. You had a mass medium, right? It It did not track individual behavior. This medium, the internet, could track individual behavior and then try to influence individual behavior behaviors that would that could be undemocratic um, that could be harmful uh, 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 to people and it also meant they had no privacy rights so um, as part of a campaign in the late 1990s calling for the privacy rights of all Americans because I was I'm a, a US NGO um, the only group of people we were able to get a, a law passed was to protect children. So in 1998, the Congress passed COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And you ask me how um, COPPA has worked, and what COPPA basically says is that um, if you're 12 and under, companies cannot collect any personal information from you unless your parents give their consent. Now, why is, was, is that a good thing? Because what that meant was your parent, a, ch- a child's parent, would have to opt in, agree to allow their children to be tracked. And parents did not want to agree to have their kids uh, uh, tracked. In the United States today, and in most places, but in the United States, when you turn 13, and there's no more privacy protections because COPPA only goes up to 12. Mm-hmm. You are tracked 24-7 wherever you go, whatever device you use, whatever application you're on. Mm-hmm. If you're under 12, because this opt-in, affirmative consent, has to be given, you are not as, you're not tracked as much it's because the companies don't want to ask. So... COPPA has been a good safeguard. It's, it's not the entire answer. We need to have more regulation. The privacy, I mean, the surveillance technologies have become much more powerful. Um, but it's played a very important role. Some of the work companies and governments are already doing is amazing. But we felt that there was room for improvement. 
we wanted to know what else can be done to make the digital world safe for young people. So the internet providers are creating the space uh, which can be used positively and negatively. I think the providers and internet um, service companies have a lot of potential uh, to prevent uh, the online sexual exploitation. And secondly, uh, not only the um, when we talk about the digital environment and the role of the business, we tend to think about the role of providers or internet service companies. However, there are many ways where the business can help to prevent the exploitation of the children. For example, very often online, uh, to if the somebody uh, wants to buy um, or see the materials where the children are used in ex exploitation way, uh, they generally pay by credit card, right? right? And so the credit card companies can also uh, can catch, yes, yeah, right, right. Uh, so uh, we need to expand our knowledge and um, what kind of uh, business uh, can be actually more involved in um, cre creating the safe um, space uh, for the children. So mm -hmm. the provider, internet-related service companies, game producers, mm -hmm. and actually the bank, uh, credit company, mm -hmm. finance, uh, many um, business. So it seems like there's opportunities and there's threats. How mm -hmm. do we find that balance to avoid situations like this from occurring? Because obviously it differs between different states and different cultures. What, what, is there a solution? So, my name is Farida Shaheed. I'm based in Lahore, Pakistan, and I am the director of Shirkatka Women's Resource Center. But in my capacity here, it's because I was a former UN Special Rapporteur on Cultural Rights, the first rapporteur. I don't know if there's a solution, but I definitely think we all need to work towards a solution mm -hmm. because uh, the new generation, not just people as young as you, people who are older in their 20s, etc. They don't make any distinction between their online, offline mm -hmm. lives. It's all part of the same thing. So if we're talking about human rights of people, we need to do this. One of the big challenges that I see there is that a lot of the issues that are arising in terms of risks uh, have to do with the architecture of the actual product itself, like the net, uh, which is driven by commercial interests. And it is therefore companies who are private in institutions. Um, many of the multinationals, the big companies, etc., are much bigger um, resource. I mean, better resource than many countries are, and they're not necessarily accountable to the countries. They should be, and some of the UN um, uh, uh, general comments. Sorry, this is technical words, but whatever. It's an explanation of what a right is. Yeah. Have said that countries where these companies are registered have an obligation of due diligence to go and make sure that they're doing no harm uh, at all. And so I've just learned, for instance, that Google says that YouTube is not supposed to be for people under 18. But yeah, well, I just, I mean, <laughs> I just learned that. But my grandkids who are two year old are using, I mean, they know how to swipe and things. Wow. So, and they're very often not at the human rights tables. And so this is something which needs to be pushed for. We asked a lot of questions and had long conversations with some amazing and inspiring leaders. But unfortunately, we just couldn't fit anything else into this episode. 
We just had to know one more thing though. How long will it take to make the internet safe for young people? How long will something like this take, like for this general comment to be passed through all, mm. all the negotiations between states, between companies? Mm. How long are we, are we thinking? Generally two years. Two years, okay. Yes, uh, since uh, the committee decided uh, to take up our issue mm. uh, for the new general comment, generally you, two weeks. Do you two think it's years. realistic at this stage that we're at, at the moment, the committee itself? Do you uh, think it's realistic? Realistic and also we have to stick to our oh, right, time frame. Oh, right, it's very frame. rigid, right. Yes, okay, yes. Yeah, yeah. But our concern is that uh, um, particularly this issue, digital yeah. environment, is uh, such an area uh, with a quick, uh, fast development. Mm -hmm. uh, so in two years' time, uh, the situation might be changed. Every report that you do and every general comment that the committees do, your intention is to put forward the issues and then you engage with the, the states to say, well, this is it. And you will have some states that take it forward initially and then you have others. So you're hoping to set a trend of standards that everyone should be moving towards. It won't happen overnight. Some of the things we were told are causes for concern. We think it's fantastic that something is being done about these issues. It's not all bad. Everyone we spoke to did have a positive attitude towards the future of young people's safety online. I am Laura Higgins. I'm Director of Community Safety and Digital Civility at Roblox. So I've been working with Roblox formally since January and before that I was on their Trust and Safety Advisory Board. So my background is very much in online safety. I was um, a manager at the UK Safer Internet Centre before, so um, keeping young people and families safe online has been a huge priority for me for, for years and years. Um, I'd worked alongside Roblox um, and so that you know having that trust and faith in them and helping them to keep kids safe has always been a priority. I'm very lucky that throughout my career in safeguarding people online, um, I've had the opportunity to get involved in these sorts of consultations. Um, I, the services I used to run at the Safer Internet Centre were helplines where we were directly helping to resolve issues that young people were having online and I think that helps to inform some of the discussions. So it's not just about academic theory, this is about real world problems. I've also always worked with different tech companies, so I was on Twitter's safety board and Snapchat's safety board and through that I have real kind of understanding of how they work and what the issues really are. So that I, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky that I can come and have a voice here. Yeah. Um, so one thing that you did say, and I, off the article that I found it, and I thought it was absolutely amazing because I feel like it outlines one of the main points that we're addressing today. Is you said uh, we will walk, we will work with parents and caregivers who are key by helping them to learn how to talk to their children. So I think that's it's, it was an amazing statement, and I really do think that parents have the responsibility to learn how to adequately take care of their children even when they're not there by like implementing certain like regulations of time and time and like uh, support and monitoring uh, what do you think about that so what part of my role is around this whole idea around civility so if we've talked about safety and we have mm -hmm. really good tools we think we can go a step further and help create a really nice healthy community and as those kids grow up from being seven eight nine ten and learning how to play fair how to resolve conflict without it being a fight all of those skills they take that through their gaming career with them and we think that that's an opportunity but we can also work with families mm -hmm. when we have young players on the platform 
their parents are key, you know, um, yeah. and educators as well. So um, I actually go out and I do sessions with parents at schools and things like that. Mm. We're making resources. We work with safety partners all over the world. We have a safety advisory board with people from America, from Germany, from France, um, who are always informing us about what parents in their countries need to know. Yeah. And we work with them to make resources. Um, and so, you know, we use social media. Go where parents are. Parents are busy. So we have these great tools, but if they don't know how to use them or find them, they're not going to come to our website to go mm. read stuff. So we need to go where they are. So I do loads of media. I do loads of interviews to just drip feed some of this stuff. And it shouldn't be hard. Mm. You know, go spend time with your kids. Let them show you. Let them mm. talk to you about what they like and what they don't like. Mm. Personally, I think play is, you know, is beautiful to hear being discussed here, is the mm. right to play. Yeah. It's how, particularly young children, it's how you learn about the world and everything in it. Yeah. But that doesn't stop. And play is fun. Mm. And it's fun to play even when you're an adult. <laughs> and yeah. so kind of getting parents to go... You know, it's not a totally strange world. There are things you could do with your family that you're going to enjoy. You can have those teachable moments with your kids mm -hmm. by role modelling what you expect them to do when yeah. they're online yeah. and have fun when you're doing it. This is a Gifted Young Generation production. Welcome with the Five Arts Charity and the UN. You've been listening to our podcast team, Jeevan, Mason, Fian and Owen. My thanks to Baroness Bibb and Kidron, Hugh Prosser from Blue Air and The Grand. I'm Jamal Hogue-Doris, and you've been listening to our Thrive podcast. Search Thrive Young Voices to hear more, or visit www.giftedyounggeneration.co.uk.